Hey everybody, welcome back to episode three of Some Sanity with Morgan Zeggers. I appreciate you coming back for episode three. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to everybody who has given reviews so far. I was really surprised by how many views reviews we got. It was really, really sweet and I was not expecting it. So thank you so much. If you haven't yet, if you could just go leave the five star thing, and strong ask can you leave a message uh review that would be really helpful apparently that helps with the algorithm so if you could help me out do that um if you haven't yet thank you so much just you know nothing crazy just be like wow she was the most intellectual commie fighter i've ever heard and the best podcast in the entire universe uh why do anything else with your life other than listen to this podcast you know don't say anything crazy but just something like that i don't think that's too too much to ask you know but thanks in advance um let's see you guys at first when i launched this i wanted to do the first podcast episode as commie fighting 101 which is like my usual speech my usual thing that i do but i was like no that'd be too basic i've gotta you know ease my way into it and then we'll do a commie fighting episode and so today is the commie fighting episode it's my number one most requested thing it's the thing I do at college campuses when I go to speak there, but you're getting the special podcast edition. So you're welcome. Welcome. You're welcome and welcome to the podcast. You're welcome and welcome. Okay. I need some water once again. Okay. Sorry. I get so thirsty and it's really hot in Texas. Okay. What are we going to do? We're going to talk about understanding the enemy. We're going to talk about groups on the left so their infrastructure and then we're going to talk about tactics of the left that we have to better understand um because if you look throughout history they're actually repeated in quite a similar pattern and so seeing it happen in america is, is kind of fascinating to me because we're following those same steps and it's very concerning ah! um but I'll try not to have a panic attack while I'm doing this podcast. Um, first, you guys. So I'm assuming a lot of you have probably read The Art of War. It's like one of the most classic books, right? In The Art of War, one of the talking points is that you need to understand both yourself and your enemy. Because if you only understand yourself and you try to go against your enemy, you're going to have things that feel like wins. But really, they're just small, tiny wins. And in the long run, you're still losing. And I think conservatives are doing that quite often right now. Um, we are assuming that the young Americans who think they want socialism are just as bad and evil as actual leftists. So like the straight up Marxist socialist communists. I refer to the leftists, the people who actually think that we're going to try socialism in a different way this time. And it just hasn't been properly implemented before and or it's always been corrupted those people are actual flat earthers of economics. Big difference between the flat earthers of economics and the people our age who are kind of caught between the conservatives, the liberals, the leftists. They just want to help people. They see that there are problems with the healthcare system. They see there are problems with the college system. They want to protect the environment. They see that there are homeless people and poor people. And they think, why not help them with government help? Why not support these programs that the left has been pushing out they seem so great and moral they're just falling for it hard you guys they're falling for the lies of the left there's our group our generation 
a lot of them unfortunately say they want socialism right now. So about 58% want socialism over capitalism. That's according to Gallup. And then there's, of course, the victims of communism poll that shows 70% of our generation would vote for a socialist. The problem is that I've, I highly doubt 70% of our generation has even heard the term seize the means of production or nationalize industry. They have no idea what that means. And if they think of socialism, they think it's going to be Nordic Europe, which is capitalist and it's another distortion uh, of the narrative put on by the leftists. So again, they're just falling for it hard. And our problem here is, like Sun Tzu said, if we keep misunderstanding who our enemy is and messaging to them in an incorrect way, we are going to continue to lose and just push them further and further into the loving arms of people like AOC and people on the left who actually want to seize the means of production, who actually want to implement socialism, but just differently this time in America. And so to fully understand them, we have to separate our misguided peers who are being used as useful idiots by the left and the leftist flat earthers of economics. They can get attacked all the time. I don't give a crap, okay? I will argue with them. I will debate with them. I Honestly, I won't de- debate with them. Like, I won't actually be like, yeah, let's debate in a YouTube debate because it's such a waste of time. Why are we giving them a platform to talk with us as if they aren't supporting an idea, an ideology and an idea, a concept that has failed over two dozen times and has never worked, and every single time it's that cycle of first the Western people, the Western thought leaders and media say, oh my God, this is fantastic. This is going to be the um, official, correct implementation of socialism and communism. We're going to see it, a, a workers' revolution. Well, once that starts to fail like it usually does, then they're going to get a little quiet, and then a little bit later they say, oh no, the attempt got corrupted by authoritarianism. It wasn't the socialism that led to authoritarianism. It was just these people that came in and corrupted it. It has nothing to do with socialism, okay? It was just corrupted. Okay, cycle. Do you see the cycle? Well, America is up next in the cycle, folks. Either way, I hate having to act like, oh, we're debating if capitalism or socialism. Which one's better? You guys, no, no. We aren't going to play their games anymore. We're like inviting them to the debate table when they are flat earthers. This is incredibly ridiculous. If you want to sit down at the adult table and have a conversation about how we're going to move forward, then reject authoritarianism, reject socialism and communism, and embrace capitalism and classical liberalism and say, okay, now I'll debate you on how we can solve the problems. But don't bring problems that have created absolute chaos and absolute agony for millions of people, death of millions of people. Don't bring that to the table in America in 2021 and act like we're going to take you seriously. So I will go out them all the time because I don't care. They are flat earthers. However, to treat our generation, the people being used and abused by the left as useful idiots, as if they are the same as the flat earthers is incredibly wrong for us to do. We have to show them that the leftists, the flat earthers, literally hate liberals just as much as they hate conservatives because they see us on that same foundation of classical liberalism and capitalism. They see us as the same, as the right. They see America as a right country compared to other countries like in Europe and stuff where it's the socialists versus the conservatives. In America, we're all kind of like more right, more conservative, because we already reject the leftism and we debate as Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, and we just completely 
abandon the left and we don't include them in the conversations. Now they're being included in the conversations way more than they ever have before. They're getting a little too big for their britches. But when we treat our peers who are just trying to help others and see people suffering as if they are idiots, as if they're dumb, as if they are harmful for the country, we're only pushing them further into the loving arms of people like AOC and the people on the left who are using really fluffy, fake language, saying that they're going to help working class people, saying they're going to bring progress to America, when in reality, that's the same talking point that's been used by every single socialist movement in the world, and it's never worked. The only way you can empower the working class and empower people and bring progress to a country, progress to people's lives is through capitalism and classical liberalism. So let's stop, stop falling for it. Okay, so now that we have that differentiation, what are we gonna do? Two tactics. Let's talk about two communication tactics before we move into the groups and the tactics of the left. So now that we understand the enemy here, it's the actual leftists. Our peers who are being lied to are not our enemy. They are potential people to join us once they are enlightened with the truth, baby. Two ways we can reach them that have been really effective for me so far. First-hand testimony, so interviewing survivors of socialism who have immigrated to America, who have sought refugee status in America. Uh, our best video at Young Americans Against Socialism got 25 million views on it, and it's of a man who windsurfed across the ocean from Cuba to the Florida Keys, joins the U.S. military once he gets here as a way to say thank you to the country that gave him freedom. 25 million views. And I would say that it goes viral and it does so well, it performs so well because people don't usually see the stories of uh, pro-freedom anti-socialism messaging. Usually we hear the stories of the people suffering that the left always push out. They're so good at emotion. They're so good at pulling the morality card. And you guys, our side is just as many, if not way more, emotional, pull-at-the-heartstring style stories that we can also tell, and we just have to start doing so. So first-hand testimony not only brings emotion to the table, but it also helps paint a very vivid picture for young Americans who have never felt the threat. And when you look at the numbers of like 70% of our generation would vote for a socialist, I would say a lot of that reason is because we've never personally felt the threat of socialism or communism ourselves. We can't possibly imagine living in a place where our freedoms are actually you know, being threatened. I would say now during COVID, they actually are because we see the rise of the authoritarian left. But in the way that we'd never lived through the Red Scare, the generations before us did directly, we have not. And so we can't personally paint a picture of what it's like to feel threatened by a leftist authoritarian regime. Um, because of that, interviewing survivors, interviewing people who have lived through it paints a really vivid picture for them and helps them better understand what it's like. So that's such a strong, a strong messaging tactic. The other, I think I talked about this in episode one, is peer rationale, peer-to-peer -peer communication. So this is all to the, to the young people out here and to the people who are in conversations with their friends and they're like, what the heck? There, there was a Michigan State University study that said the most effective way to communicate to a young person an opposing viewpoint or a difficult to understand concept in general, instead of like the way young people usually just memorize information for a test and then spit it out onto the page for the test and then forget it. This study, the goal of it was to figure out how do you get the young people to fully understand why it's important for them and their lives and the people around them and their community. And especially if it's like a hard to understand concept, like an opposing viewpoint. The study said that peer-to-peer uh, -peer communication was the most effective way to convey those points, not passing it down from a parent, not passing it down from a professor. So peer-to-peer -peer is most effective. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm conservative and I like to be efficient and effective. So this is right up my alley. 
I get so much hope from this because that is proof that we are the most effective communicators in the fight against socialism. It's up to us. If that's not a strong call to action for you guys, I don't know what is. Finding out that it's actually us that could be the most effective communicators in the fight against socialism is so important. And I hope you take all this information and inspiration into your conversations in your life to understand that it's really up to you to pass these points down to anybody who's being misguided in your life. They deserve the truth. They're being lied to and they deserve the truth. So now that we kind of understand those tactics, we understand who we're trying to deal with. We're not trying to attack our generation for falling for the lies. We're trying to get them the truth. And then we actually attack the commies because the commies see liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, all of us as the same. They hate us all because we stand on that foundation that believes in personal private rights, that believes in capitalism, classical liberalism, all that good stuff that's made America so great and so unique and exceptional. The leftists hate it. And so they see us in the same boat. They hate us. And whenever socialists rise to power, it's not just the conservatives that get killed. It's not just the initial political opponents. The liberals go next. <laughs> and then after that, actually, they, they like to also kill off all the very passionate supporters from their movement because they could be threatening in the future to the power dynamic. So just get rid of everybody. You know what I mean? Why not? Um, but so communication tactics, we are going for the people who need to be enlightened. They deserve the truth. They're being lied to. What do we do though, when the left has such strong infrastructure and we are kind of just building it up? You know what I mean? Like with this cancel culture stuff, clearly we don't have a foot up in the industries that are needed, especially with social media. I think daily wire, what they're doing and creating a movie business is so exciting because now Hollywood actors have an outlet. They can't be canceled if they can go to a conservative alternative. So that's really exciting to see. But in general, there are so many groups amongst the left on the activism side and on the political side that are on that people are unaware of. So we're going to go through them. And especially what bothers me, like remember when Antifa was just burning down city streets in our country and like terrorizing the streets for months at a time and people were saying antifa is like not a real organization or group yes it is and it's not alone there's a lot of groups out there so we're gonna go through five um first is really an interesting story do you guys remember the sunrise movement so the sunrise movement is they had this really popular moment do you remember when the kids went to senator diane feinstein's office in california it was in D.C., but she's from California. And this was like maybe 2019, early, right after AOC got put into office. So everybody's new on Capitol Hill. It's like this new rush of democratic socialism, people advocating for the Green New Deal, stuff like that. And um, kids went to Senator Dianne Feinstein's office and were screaming at her, crying to a U.S. senator that they were going to die because she wouldn't support the Green New Deal. And when she said, well, I'll read the bill or, you know, I don't think I'm going to support it. I can't remember what she said. They're like, what do you mean? You want us to die? And so you have this like horde of children screaming at a U.S. senator. Behind them are a bunch of adults filming it. Weird. Strange. <laughs> and and people, a lot of people assume that that was a random occurrence. Like, oh, wow, the kids must care so much about the climate. No, dummies, it's the Sunrise Movement, okay? They are the lobbying arm of the leftist movement for America, the socialist movement. They are specifically trying to get the Green New Deal passed at a national level 
with lobbying. They're trying to lobby the states. They lobby local areas to pass it. And so I know there are some cities that have adopted their own version of the Green New Deal or whatever. The Sunrise Movement specifically lobbies and tries to get lawmakers to sign on. And so they do those weird publicity stunts like screaming at a U.S. senator via children saying that they're going to die. That was the Sunrise Movement. Justice Democrats. This is another interesting one. So AOC's brother submitted her to a Justice Democrats um, submission pool for who could potentially be chosen to run for Congress. And so they basically said, like, we'll help you run. We'll pick the people that we think are right that could potentially do this and run with a socialist agenda. Um, And so her brother submitted her. I mean, honestly, also, it's like maybe she was like, please submit me. (laughs) Who knows what the real story is there? But they're very public about like, yeah, she was submitted and we just chose her and then we trained her to become a candidate. We gave her all the stuff that she needed, all the money, all the tools, all the PR, all the media, all the paperwork, all the stuff that she would need to run a successful candidacy. We gave it to her and then she won. And then after she won, they decided to put out a new submission poll of who's going to be the next AOC. So they did another round of candidates. And what's important for us to understand is, you know, they're not necessarily trying to replace Republicans in tight seats. They're trying to get rid of Democrats in deep blue seats that are wishy-washy. So more establishment. They're trying to beat them in the primaries, replace those um, deep-rooted Democrat incumbents with progressive socialist um, replacements. And so they're actively doing that. It's like the same thing with AOC. She's in a very deep blue district. There's really no getting her out unless she loses a primary. She went after Joe Crowley and and she brought the fire. She really did it. And so they're trying to do that across the country. They're trying to grow the progressive caucus, if you will. Next, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. Oh my God. Um, Democratic Socialists of America, this is what really bothers me, and it's, it's helpful for us to understand the difference between a liberal and a leftist. Democratic socialists tell people our age that if we adopt socialism in America, we will end up like Nordic Europe. Nordic Europe is capitalist. They have a private economy, private industry, but they have very large welfare programs and really high taxes. But at the end of the day, they also have said many a time, but we still respect capitalism and will still be founded on that. Um, the Democratic Socialists of America, when you read the fine print on their website, and I screenshotted this because I knew they would probably take it off one day once they were like exposed. I was just reading their constitution or what, it, like their, their platform or whatever. He was talking about how their long-term goal is to get rid of private business. They just don't have a plan for it yet. And I was like... What the heck? What what do you mean you don't have a plan for it? What do you mean you? Why would you put that on your website? But then I got to thinking, and I was like, "Oh, that's actually really smart because whenever you take control of private business throughout history, it's never gone very peacefully. It's quite violent to seize the means of production, to take over private industry, um, to take someone's private business that they created and worked so hard for. Never really goes very peacefully. So why would you put that on a website?" when you're planning to do so in the future. And the website goes on to say, like, until we come up with a long-term plan to implement this, we're just going to focus on the short run, which means 
focusing on increasing taxes, increasing regulation in order to slowly help us gain control of those private businesses so that one day it's easier for us to take control of them. And it's like, oh my gosh, because what have I been saying to you guys? Understand the difference between the liberal and a leftist. Usually the liberal will embrace capitalism, but just want more taxes and more regulation. It's damaging for us to call a liberal a socialist because then it confuses the heck out of our generation. Then they're able to be like, oh, well, a tax is socialism. Like, then I guess I'm a socialist. You know how easy that is for them to make that transition of like, oh, well, I mean, if this regulation or if this program is socialist, then I guess I'm a socialist. That's why they're like, sure, socialism's awesome. Because that's not socialism, you guys. Let's be real here. When we overuse the term socialism, it confuses the heck out of our generation and encourages them to say, sure, I'm a socialist. So what the heck am I supposed to do, though? Because I just told you guys, don't call every person who advocates for higher taxes and more regulation a socialist. Don't call every initiative a socialist initiative. What do I do when the socialists are openly admitting, oh, yeah, I mean, we're actively advocating that so that in the end we can just take control of the private business? Ah, it makes everything so much worse because now on top of already being called McCarthy, I'm like McCarthy times five. So it's really important for us to understand the policy beliefs of candidates, of politicians, to fully understand, is this just a lib or is this a leftist with bad long-term intentions? That's a DSA for you. Okay, Black Lives Matter. I'm not going to go on a rant about Black Lives Matter right now, but what's important for us to understand is that they actively advocate for ending the nuclear family in exchange for community raising of children, which... I'm going to do a whole episode on the family and the fact that like every single statistic shows when you were raised in a strong nuclear family, you are best set for life. And the left is like, F the nuclear family. What has it ever done for us anyways? We should just have everybody not be raised by the nuclear family. It's like what? You know how, like, they always say that statistic about climate change of like 97% of scientists say that the climate is changing from humans. Okay. Well, I feel the same way about your rejection of the nuclear family, knowing that all of the statistics are so strongly in its favor. So that's something, maybe I can make that connection in the future, actually. That's really interesting. Um, but Black Lives Matter is actively advocating for that stuff. They have said that they support socialism. And most importantly, um, the founders of it have come out as trained Marxists. And so that's the real, that's the big hitter right there. They were doing a really leftist interview and the guy who was interviewing them was like, listen, listen, ladies, we're really worried because you have a lot of money behind you. You have a lot of public support, a lot of PR press. Um, you have a lot of momentum behind your movement, but what, where's your proof that you guys have like long-term ideological drive, that you have a goal, that you're going to achieve stuff and not just be a grift? And to settle this leftist fears, the founder of Black Lives Matter was like, oh, no, don't worry. Don't worry at all, friend. We are trained Marxists. We are well-versed in ideology. And the, just the way she was talking, she was like, homie, I know exactly what we're doing. Don't you worry. Like, we are trained Marxists. <laughs> if you ever hear trained Marxists, just run. Same thing when a leftist says they're going to bring progress. Just go. Run. Walk the other way. Um... So yeah, Black Lives Matter. They also wrote this really troubling letter when Fidel Castro passed away that they wanted to like honor his his legacy and stuff like that. It was titled Lessons from Fidel. Sweet. You should go read it. Google Lessons from Fidel, letter written by Black Lives Matter founders. You'll be able to read it. And last but not least, Antifa. Last organization, Antifa. 
well, let's talk about it. So Antifa, obviously we've seen the destruction that they've caused. Overall, they're the people that are marching through our streets, terrorizing our streets, carrying hammer and sickle signs as they claim to be against police brutality and are fighting for the working class. So at the same time as they were initially rioting and causing all their ruckus with their communist hammer and sickle signs, uh, the people of Hong Kong were carrying American flags and singing the national anthem, wishing that they were not living under communist rule. And I thought that was just one of the most powerful instances of, of modern day current events. It, it will be a historic moment looking back generations from now. They'll say there was this stark contrast in America of the rejection of what made us great from the beginning while at the same time the people suffering from the ideas pushed by the new leftist movement were actually trying to escape them over in in China in an actual communist regime. So that's going to be fascinating for historians one day. But Antifa, the biggest lesson from the fight against socialism that we have to pay attention to is that when I interview survivors of socialism for the nonprofit, it is fascinating to me that so many of them say they watch what's going on in the news with Antifa, especially during June, during the summer when it was really violent. It was giving them PTSD seeing what Antifa was doing and the way they were acting because in Venezuela, where a lot of the survivors that I interview have come from, they had the Chavistas and the Colectivos, which were very similar, you know, grassroots style groups that would terrorize the streets, terrorize communities, terrorize neighborhoods and, and college campuses. And they would do so in the name of their ideological ide- <laughs> ideological movement. Sorry, I'm like, it's late and I'm tired. Ideological movement. And they went from being this violent, grassroots, like on the street style, gangster, domestic terrorist group to eventually being the paid police of the socialist regime once they were in power. And in in most situations when socialism and communism is set in, they get that secret police force set up. They get some sort of terrorizing group that keeps people in line, that keeps people accountable and, and supporting the regime and stuff like that. And oftentimes they get rid of that. And, you know, obviously they get rid of the old regime security groups, um, but they just end up replacing the old with their own new version that's much more violent. And so it's so funny that American American leftists are like, oh, the police, we need to have policeless societies and, you know, community policing instead and all this stuff. When in reality, if they ever were given power, the people terrorizing the streets in the, the mobs of Antifa would just be the people who end up policing the community and the country. And so it's really scary to think about because those people are truly freaky um they have very bad intentions they're the they're the kind of people that like send me death threats and stuff and i get a lot of guillotine death threats from them it's fantastic but uh when survivors of socialism so many times when i talk to them they say it gives me ptsd to see what they're doing to america because it was so similar and they went from being that random neighborhood terrorizing style group that was just really deep rooted in their ideology to eventually being the paid police that killed people and and did the government's dirty work. So very troubling. But you guys, that kind of gets us to the last bit. Here we go. We're going to talk about the tactics of the left. And I love talking about these. Um, First, 
tactic of the left, first one, is language, language distortion, okay? So my favorite book is The Road to Serfdom. One of my favorite books is The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek, and he wrote this almost 100 years ago. And in it, he talks about how leftists throughout history have changed the meanings of basic words that we use every day in order to distort and control the narrative. So obviously some some buzzwords right here we can think of are progress, justice, <laughs> social democracy versus democratic socialism versus socialism, that whole, you know, what even is socialism concept. And freedom is one that they really distort. Um, there's this Bernie Sanders video that's really fascinating. And it basically is a bunch of young people that pop up on a screen and they go, what is freedom? Freedom, 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 freedom. And so it like flashes between the people and then they all ask questions. And so one says, am I free if I have student loan debt? Am I free if I have high healthcare costs? Am I really free if I only work my dead end job to get healthcare insurance? <laughs> I remember watching that being like, was that a real question they just asked? Um, because yes, that was. And the video ends not by saying like, yes, you're still free. We're, we're thankful to be in America where we are still free in those ways. God bless. Um, but we do have problems. Let's fix them. Instead, it says, no, you're not free in those situations where you're only working your dead end job to get health care insurance. <laughs> you're not free because freedom comes from economic freedom and you aren't economically free right now, what would make you economically free is to be able to rely on the government to provide those things for you instead of having to do it yourself. And so it's it's trading this concept of being free, not having to be oppressed by anybody, not having to rely on anyone else, being able to take care of yourself. That's not freedom anymore. Freedom is now the ability to reject the burden of being. I mean, life life sucks. Life sucks. Like I was watching last, what was it? The Last of the Mohicans, recently and it, I, it was just so interesting to watch the fact that people used to have to grow food for the entire year and then save it and then survive off that food but can you just imagine like how lucky we are right now I everybody like used to save food and have to like ration it out for how much they were going to eat for the entire winter day by day so they didn't run out and now everybody here is just fat because we snack all the time like I snack all the time we're very lucky okay but um just this general concept of like, oh my God, we have hard times in life and so we're not free. We would be free if we trusted the government to take care of all these things for us. That's what Bernie Sanders is saying. And so he's saying, reject the burden of being by handing the stress off of your shoulders, placing it off your shoulders and into the hands of the government. Um, and right there, you're just creating a false sense of security because if the government ever took that away, you'd be screwed screwed you'd be screwed you'd be reliant on the government and then as soon as they rip that rug right out of your feet which they will oh boy you're screwed and what we saw in venezuela is once you're reliant on the government for those basic things whether that's like your full-on retirement you have no personal savings your full-on retirement or your job because they're basically the only employee or they're the only employer and you have to work for the government whether it's through a private company which is just owned by their one of their lackeys from the regime or if you actually work for the government's uh industries either way you have to rely on them for the job you rely on them for your grocery times so you're assigned uh, an hour per week that you can go pick up your groceries you use the same card to get your health care as your groceries as your voting all of the stuff is on your one card and guess what if you upset the government at that point they can easily just say 
do you want us to take your card away? Do you what do you want us to make sure that you don't get groceries this week? Do you want us to make sure that you get rejected from the hospital? If you go to this protest, you are going to be marked down with your card. If you try and use your card at the healthcare facility after you go to a student protest and get shot at by one of the government regime people who shoot at protesters, you're not going to be given your healthcare service because we're going to take it away from you because you stood against us. Do you see where the pickle starts to come in? There's a big pickle here, folks. Well, either way, according to Bernie Sanders, being reliant on the government for everything is now freedom because then you don't have to feel the stress and burden of life. And I would say freedom comes with a lot of responsibility and stress, but I'd rather have that stress and responsibility than be reliant on a government who can cancel it at any time or use it over my head to stay in power and oppress the people for a continuous amount of time. Um, yeah, what is freedom? So that's that tactic for them, manipulating language. A few recent examples, if you guys remember, we saw herd immunity in June 2020 on the World Health Organization's website. It said that it was something you could achieve through a certain level of vaccination or a certain level of infection of the population. <laughs> and now herd immunity, as of November 2020, it was changed to... Um, reaching a certain level of vaccination in the population. And so once the people started to say, wait, why don't we just like open the country up a certain level so that we can start to achieve herd immunity? Would that make sense? They literally just deleted the definition of herd immunity and made it so that it was only if you had the vaccination. Fascinating. One of the other fun examples is um, Amy Coney Barrett. Remember when people used to say sexual preference normally, like it was a normal thing? Literally, it changed the day she used it. And so Joe Biden had said it before. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said it before. And it, it was just, it's just a, a way of saying who people prefer to love and, and spend their romantic time with. And she answered a question during her hearing and she was like, oh, I w- would never judge someone based on their sexual preference. Oh, oh my God, they needed to get mad about something. And so what did they do? They decided to say that sexual preference was now an offensive term. And by the end of the day, after all these new headlines came out about how horrible she was for saying it, and the lawmakers were like, how dare you say that offensive thing? Everybody's like, wait, what is happening? By the end of the day, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary online changed sexual preference to have an asterisk that said offensive term (laughs) at the end of it. Wow, fascinating. Um, so it just, that stuff like really drives me bonkers. But the more you open your eyes to it, you can start to see like, wait, yeah, it doesn't really add up anymore. And one of their new ones that we should keep an eye on is violence. And so it, that's how they're attacking free speech is they used to, you know, people used to say, well, unless your speech harms someone, you should be able to say it. And now what they're saying is, oh, well, well yeah, well, your political speech, even though it's not really violent, it, it kind of harms me because it prevents me from whatever. And so it's harming my life. It's violent against me. And most recently I saw uh, Ayanna Presley. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, a congresswoman from Massachusetts. I saw her say that um, not advocating for a $15 minimum wage was violence against poor people. Violence. 
for just being against the $15 minimum wage. Woo, language manipulation, changing the meanings of words, classic thing. And you guys, like I said, The Road to Serfdom was written almost 100 years ago. Uh, and back then he was even saying this is the classic tactic that they use to control the narrative. So we're seeing that all the time. And if you open your eyes a little bit more to like the, the, the words that they use, you you just kind of start to go, wait, what? That's not even the definition. <laughs> um all right, so moving on to number two, Marxism. So uh, I have a, I guess I can explain Marxism really quick. Uh, I think I did on episode one, but Marxism is when you split the working class, the amazing working class against the evil, oppressive, rich owning class. Side note, I'm really excited. I want to buy a house really soon. I'm like looking in the market right now and um, I'm, I'm kind of excited to like one day be like a member of the wor- the owning class the evil oppressive owning class that the communists hate i'm an owning class member but not yet i don't own my house yet um one day but either way marxism you split the working class against the evil oppressive rich owning class and after enough tension is built up you hopefully spark for the marxists you hopefully spark a working class revolution where the workers overthrow the rich and the uh, owning class and then they become the owners and so the the workers own the means of production and stuff like that so marxism starts with creating that division that divisiveness between classes uh in america we're also seeing cultural marxism where they're taking that element of division uh of the population but they're dividing us on other aspects and so that's where like (laughs) i've said before like i i like liberals not leftists i have a problem with leftists but part of the problem with liberals the extreme like neoliberals of today are the fact that they are so ridiculous especially with their pc culture and so their pc culture and their wokeism is helping the cultural Marxists who are trying to divide us on other aspects than class. And so that's why we're being divided by race, by sexual orientation, by religion, all of those things. They thrive. They truly thrive when, um, sorry, my screen recorder just came on and freaked me out. They truly thrive when the population is divided. So uh, an interesting story that I love that kind of teaches how you create that divisiveness uh, is from when Fidel Castro and Che Guevara landed in Cuba. And I was watching this documentary. I was fascinated by it because they kind of told this story randomly in it. And I was like, wait, that's kind of a big deal. Like, have you guys ever noticed that? Like some tidbits of history are kind of lost, the details of it. But when you learn the details, you can kind of connect the dots and say, holy crap, that's kind of a big, important thing that we're missing out here. Um, But basically Castro and Che, they land in Cuba. They have their first fight, um, their first battle, and they are low in numbers at the end so they have like numbers in the teens they've really got to build ranks they've got to build a force to actually win their communist revolution on their way to havana after this first battle and so they go throughout the countryside to kind of poor working class towns and at the time and you'll still hear american leftists saying this they'll call cuban farmers like rich oppressive people and like slave owners and stuff like that and so Like every time I interview a survivor from Cuba, the leftists will comment and be like, oh, I'm so sorry that this man's family was killed. Oh my God, it must be so hard to be from the rich farming class of Cuba. So bad. I'm so sorry that the working people rose up against their evil farming oppressive owning class. They like hate the farmers and think that they're all rich and stuff. So either way, 
Castro decides to build some little Marxist tension between the classes by going to the people in the working class towns and saying, hey, you guys, see those people down there at those farms with all that land, all that money, all those resources, all those animals that you don't have? It is not fair that they have all that stuff and you don't. It is not fair. It is not right. So you know what I just did? I took their animals, stole them, and I'm giving them to you now because you deserve them. That's what's fair. That's what's moral. And if you stick with me on my working class revolution, this is just a little taste of what you're going to get. Join me. Let's do this. That's a strong pitch. People are like, oh, hell, okay. Uh, And you're right. It is right and moral that I get this. I do deserve it. So flash forward to 2019. 2020 so kind of like when the dems are fighting it out in the primaries you're hearing elizabeth warren bernie sanders a lot of the leftists and the the liberals they go hey kids see those evil people on wall street all those evil millionaires and billionaires all that money that you don't have it is not fair that they have more money than you that they have that amount of money and it is not fair that you are also suffering with your student loan debt At the same time, this is America. That shouldn't happen here. Give us power. And what we're going to do is we're going to take what they have and give it to you guys to solve your problem because that's what's fair. That's what's moral. And if you support us and get us in power, vote for us. It's just a little taste. So it's the same pitch. And what they've done, just like what, what Castro did there, what happened with the student loan crisis is we normalized the concept of forced wealth redistribution in America by making it seem as if this problem was so important, we need to take a chunk. And what what really sucks about this is it wasn't just raising general amounts of taxes. It was saying, I will put a specific tax on people to take a specific amount of money from them. And what that is is really just saying, I'm about to take this much money from you, but I'm hiding it under the term of a tax. You're just taking somebody's somebody's money away. It's not a fair tax. So so that was insane, but it normalized the concept of forced wealth redistribution in America. And that brings me to the other point of this concept of Marxism. Uh, in the law by Frederick Bastiat, he talks about how in human nature, it's not normal for us to want to take something from someone else. We wouldn't walk into our neighbor's house, take something from their refrigerator and walk out and be like, meh. You know, it's it, it doesn't come natural to us to just take something that's in somebody else's possession. So how do you normalize it? How do you make people feel comfortable who are kind-hearted, who are good people? How do you make them embrace such a radical concept? And some one of the topics is like legalizing your plunder. So making what usually is considered theft, what is usually considered plunder in general of, of a wrongdoing, make it righteous and make it legal in the eyes of everybody around you and in the eyes of the law. And uh, what I've noticed with AOC and with a lot of the the billionaire millionaire talk, um, AOC has quite a few speeches where she goes and she says, you can't possibly earn $1 billion. You had to steal $1 billion. You can't fairly or morally earn one billion dollars you had to have stolen it um she said before that billionaires sit on their couches while the workers build the widgets widgets is what she said and make the real money 
and then the billionaires just take it. And this kind of language, this is just one example, but this kind of language creates in our minds an understanding that billionaires and rich people, they didn't fairly earn that money in the first place, so it's only right that it's taken back. You know what I mean? We're not taking their money and just giving it to us. They never had it morally or fairly in the first place. They took it from us in the, in the beginning, and so we're just taking it back. We're just making things right and moral and fair. She's twisted it in our heads so that we don't feel like we're taking someone else's possession, somebody else's money that they earned. We think now we're doing the right and moral thing because those people stole money from poor people. And it's only right and fair and moral and righteous that we, we take it back for them. It's not stealing. They stole it in the first place. So it's totally normalized, that concept for us. It's something we should pay attention to in the future. I need a sip of water, sorry. And you know what, guys? My last tactic is using a crisis. Um, I'm running out of a little bit of time, though. I want to keep these down to less than an hour. I'll do a whole... Honestly, I'll do a whole episode on the left using moments of crisis and chaos to rise to power, especially with COVID and everything that's happened. But uh, in 2019, when I gave this speech, I used to talk about how they were um, creating a crisis, manufacturing crisis um, by using climate change. And I, there's this really great story of Lenin when he was young. He would basically talk about how there was the 1891 famine when he was young in Russia and millions of people died and people were dying in his community. But he talks about how he didn't help anybody, even though he was from a wealthier, well-to-do family, he didn't help anybody because he knew that in order for them to want to embrace his radical ideas in the future, they would have to feel terrible. They would have to feel downtrodden, hopeless, really desperate for some sort of positive change, no matter how radical it could have potentially been. And so, um, carrying that lesson of when people are during, are experiencing hard times of uncertainty, of chaos, of crisis, they're willing to embrace more radical ideas if it will get them out of the situation they're in. And, and so we're seeing that tactic a lot from the left. I'll talk about that a little bit more in the next episode. But thanks for listening to Comic Fighting 101 for episode three of Some Sanity. I really appreciate it. Um, I will come back next week, next month, next Wednesday with another episode. I appreciate you guys listening and, um, thank you so much. I'll see you later next week. Bye.